just as a reminder, this session will be recorded. Um, our first question is coming from Andrea Lands. Hi guys, thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. Um, this question is for Michael because you are no stranger to the Oscars and we are gearing up for award season and all our for your consideration coverage. So especially during this year where things have been crazy, Greyhound has faced the obstacle of not having a theatrical release. What does it mean to you to have buzz around a movie, awards buzz around a movie that you worked on? And how is it compared to like last year when you went to the Oscars? Well, for me, Greyhound is really special because of uh, the amount of care and attention that went into it. And it, it did go on for quite a long time. And we took uh, two separate passes at it uh, a year apart from each other. Um, the whole process for me lasted almost two years. Um, so to see it come from where it started to where it ended was uh, extremely gratifying. It literally was like watching a, a child grow up. So that's, that's what, what, I, what I, my biggest takeaway is, is just I was so happy. Everybody was so happy at the end result. Okay, great. And then Andrea, was that directed towards everybody or? Yeah, anyone, anyone can answer that. Well, I'll say what was what has been remarkable about this movie is, um, you know, without under normal circumstances, it would be gone from theaters. And uh, Apple's done such a tremendous job with with this film that it's if you turn on your Apple TV, it's it's like it just got released. So this thing has been going for six months, like it's a first run movie, and um, none of us, uh, thankfully, approached this as if it would be some kind of streaming lesser than. And so I think that the uh, everything's on the screen as far as how epic it turned out. Yeah. Yep. And Mark's still editing, right? You're still editing yeah, on the movie? working on the film, actually. So no, for me, it was just very gratifying again to see how, you know, the audience really did have a thirst for kind of all the information and uh, the pace of it and, and you know, everything we packed into it. And every time we screened it for the audience, it just kind of, um, it was remarkable how uh, interested they were in the subject. So it just was really great that it kind of came out the way it did. And so many people have been able to see it in light of, uh, you know, where we are right now. So. Great. Our next question comes from Sarah Musnicki. Hi guys, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, my question's for Mark. Um, this film is such a, a fast paced, high intensity film. And I just wanted to know what the editing process was like in making sure that we got that fast pacedness, but also spent ample time um, with the characters as well during all the chaos. Yeah, I mean, that, that was always the focus, um, you know, maintaining that pace and the thrill while maintaining the clarity for the audience through all the naval jargon, <clears throat> excuse me, all the information we throw at them, it really was a painstaking, but you know, very rewarding process. Um, and again, it seemed every time we screened it for a test audience, their appetite was, was strong for the, all that info. And um, yeah, um, I just, uh, 
you know, and with the VFX and everything, we just kind of always focus on telling the story from Krauss's perspective. So, um, yeah, that's how we kind of maintained our, our pacing, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Our next question comes from James Lindorf. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm kind of curious, uh, maybe it's my biology background talking, but was there part of the score or the sound design that incorporated whale sounds? And if, if that's true, I'm curious, uh, what is the inspiration for bringing natural sounds into something that is like this cold metallic world of battleships and U-boats? Well, that's me. I'll take that. I think <laughs> Mike was very happy that I didn't use actual whale sounds, but they okay. were the inspiration. I wanted to create this otherworldly. I, I see this movie as part modern thriller, part period piece, and part horror movie. And so the horror aspects of it are these lurking U-boats below. And I wanted to give them this otherworldly sound that you couldn't really tell what it is. Is it a synth? Is it a whale? Um, is it a, which it is a violin being played very poorly through a bunch of effects. Um, and there are other instruments played very poorly through uh, effects. Um, but by doing that, it, it, it's a human playing this weird sound, which I think gets a little bit more into your skin. But yeah, uh, definitely it's called the whale sounds now. Mike, you even, I think you termed it the whale sounds and I mm -hmm. happily take that because that was the inspiration. Michael, you're on mute. Sorry. I don't know. It, it was either Gary or myself who gave it the, uh, the nickname, the whale sound, but it was, it was used very well. And because of your modular construction of your music, uh, we were able to move those things around when best needed. There's lots of different parts of the orchestra. That's the way Blake delivers it. And, and so being modular like that, um, you can refer to different pieces of music and use them wherever you, whatever's used best. Because things are always changing and evolving. This movie evolved uh, because it was Tom's movie. He wrote it, produced it. He just kept pouring more ideas on it, more ideas. And so the movie was always shifting and changing. So, uh, that was one of the great joys to watch it mature and it matured with the music and it matured with uh, uh, additional dialogue and matured with everything of uh, visual effects. Oh my gosh, how it matured. So it was all, everything sort of had to be modular uh, to, to perform its best at all times, no matter what Tom had in mind, we had to be able to deliver something something that would enhance it. Yeah, I've worked with Mike several times and the best way to work with Mike is to give him a toolbox of ideas and then come to the playback and having seen the film 50 times myself be again surprised if it, as if it's new with this new mix and uh, oh, you put that there, that scared me. So it's, that's always a treat. Okay, great. And we had Sydney joining us as well. Our next question is from Abe Freetanzer. Hi there. Uh, I'm curious uh, for any of you what uh, past um, movies or television shows either that you've worked on or that you haven't served as positive inspirations for the kind of uh, mood you wanted to convey here. 
I'm sorry, can you repeat that question? Sure. Uh, what past uh, movies or television shows that either you worked on or you didn't uh, served as positive inspiration for the kind of mood you wanted to convey here? I'd say one of them would have been the, the Pacific uh, miniseries, you know, with HBO, which was also with Playtone and Michael and Blake as well. Um, just kind of a very similar kind of uh, feel about the two projects, I'd say, for me. Well, for me, it was, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of World War II movies anyway, and, and uh, I've watched quite a few submarine movies. I've watched a lot of, uh, you know, Battle of the North Atlantic films and um and they're all very good in their in various ways i think this way what, what, what we talked about early on was not only its authenticity but we had to keep the thing moving and because it's a rush the whole the whole movie is about they've got 48 hours or something to get across this black zone that they call it and um and so everything had to be rushed. And then the fact that they're being chased and they have to chase back after the submarines and then go to protect another ship and then go to rescue another, uh, it had to be frantic for you know 90 minutes of just frantic. But yes, we do we have some pauses because you can't take too much of that. But so the inspiration I, I, from other movies was just take the best of those scenes those moments in those other movies and sort of pile them or put them together, construct them together to where it's just moving, 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 moving. I guess for me, it was, um, you know, all my work on the superhero uh, TV show genres kind of prepared me because I, I, I saw Captain Cross as a superhero <laughs> and uh, learning how to keep that tension up through seasons after seasons. Uh, this, this was one battle after another with maybe a, 30 frame respite between. Um, but also I was very inspired by some classical music that I, uh, in particular, Shostakovich Symphony, which I wanted to um, sort of make the score feel like it makes me feel when I listen to it. And it just has this forward propulsion that I thought, well, that's cool. Okay, great. Our next question comes from Boris Kellector. You're on mute, Boris. Hello, Blake. The music plays an important part in the success of this great movie. Which are for you the main differences working on such popular and amazing series DC and a movie like this one? I think the biggest differences with, uh, with those shows, you, you kind of have to be really bigger than life because they aren't real people. They're <clears throat> superheroes running around and in costumes and while i try to find their humanity through the score um it tends to be way more operatic with this it's it's back to the old uh, film scoring rules which are stay out of the way support and have your moments where you need to um and where, what i try to do is whenever there was a down moment is really return it to a very comfortable known orchestral warm sound so that when the tension's tense it's uh, make it stop. Please make it stop. Can I go back to that nice oboe for a second? Yeah. Um, and as as uh, as my daughter said when we were watching it towards the end of the film, there's a moment where Tom thinks it's over and it starts, and she says, 
he just put his slippers on. So that's kind of the feeling we're all going for. Is that, is it over? No, it's not. Thank you very much. Thanks, board. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tony Tilato. Hi, gentlemen. Uh, it sounds like for Blake and Michael that the two of you work together a lot, especially to incorporate sounds into the score. And also for Mark, a uh, question of how, what kind of shape the film uh, that you get as far as the visual effects and stuff like that when you start to edit? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, um, you know, the VFX were all just, you know, at that point, uh, post-vis, wireframe uh, type stuff. There was some, you know, we put some score in and um, it all just kind of comes together from there. And uh, yeah, uh, you just initially you could feel how how strong and uh, what, what a worthwhile thing it was to, you know, the, to working towards the ultimate goal. It just was a very powerful thing from the get-go. So, yeah. I thought what was cool with Mike and Mark was that we had so long, we got to revisit this twice as Mike said earlier, because when I'm working on a print, I don't have the visual effects. I don't have the sound effects. I'm just hoping that it's going to work. And so on our first mix, I remember realizing that some of the cool sounds that Mike was coming up with are in conflict. And so by the time we got to the second round, we really had a, a cohesion of you go low, I'll go high, you go scary, I'll go, emotional um and that that took the three of us for a year like going back and forth and throwing yeah. ideas back and forth so that is the good thing about it lasting so long yeah great our next question comes from casey mendoza yeah this is a question for everyone um and it's kind of a possible like advice question for viewers at home but because this movie was released on apple tv plus instead of theaters what would you say is your best advice to kind of recreating the theater experience from home especially when it comes to possibly recreating the immersive experience or getting the best possible picture and sound quality Well, um, I, when I first heard it and saw it on, uh, on TV, um, I had some concerns, but they were just concerns that I had to, I wanted to follow up on. So I did talk to uh, the Apple engineers and they were very, very helpful. Actually, I spoke to them before we actually, before the release, we had made a special streaming version of the sound mix. And uh, so I conferred with them at that point. And then we conferred again once we finished it. And then I, we conferred again when they, they gave me a, like a, a test run that I could do in my own home TV. And then when the actual release came. So I was always I was in contact with them quite a bit. And um, it is, for me, it's, it is very difficult to transition from a big, stage, you know, it's 60 feet by 50 feet with a 40 foot ceiling mixing in Atmos with, you know, 40,000 watts of power pushing speakers, pushing, you know, 80 speakers. Um, it's, it's quite a bit different experience. So um, where I ended up with the conversations with all the Apple engineers was 
the, the best way to, for you to receive this, these presentations, both with picture and sound, is to get the latest equipment. <laughs> they sounded more like salesmen at that point. But uh, it's, it, I, I believe it to be true. The latest uh, receiver being the Apple box, uh, the, the latest smart TVs that have the better sound, obviously sound, uh, separate sound um, uh, uh, systems, whether they be 5.1, 7.1 or Atmos. Anything you can do to upgrade your own personal experience at home is valuable and good. And you, it's not that you have to, because these mixes are, and the picture are, are designed to play uh, across multiple formats. So um, just give yourself the best shot at it. And if you have your own personal little theater at home would be the optimum. Then you could like customize it any way you want. But most of us, most of us don't have that. So mm. um, it's just the more you, the better you want it, just, just the more money you spend. <laughs> I was able to get these, um... You know, one of these, and I'm a sound guy, but I got one of these inexpensive sound bars. It's an Atmos sound bar with a sub, and it's terrific. And, you know, you have to remember that <clears throat> film is front lit and TV's backlit. So you, you need to, you know, blacken the room as much as you can. And don't forget popcorn. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> as far as the picture goes, uh, uh, one thing I can say is that Gary Gitzman, the, our producer, had um, he had a challenge with the timing of the picture, with the uh, uh, the visual aspect of coloring, colorization, and the uh, and brightness in the tone, because the Apple's first instinct was to make it as gorgeous as possible, and he had to pull them back from that. So this is, I want it to look, look more vintage. You know, I like the grays, I like the blues. And uh, so he had to tweak it so that it optimized what he wanted and it satisfied the Apple engineering people with what they wanted. Okay, great. Our next question comes from Marvin Nolasco. I've um, actually got two questions and these questions are precluded with a warning to the audiences who have not yet watched this spectacular Greyhound. Um, spoiler alert for those who have not watched this. My question, first question is exclusively for Sydney for his amazing editing skill for this film. Um, one of the um, scenes that really hounds me to this very moment is that scene when, when the battle ravages on in the ocean, on the ocean, the camera suddenly tilts off to the heavens. What design philosophy um, was behind that amazing scene? Um, that scene was in the script. And I understand it was sort of to show the scope of the battle and, uh, and give you a sense of how, I mean, for me, I mean, I can't speak for Tom Hanks or whatever, but it's a sense of how, you know, humanity is down there fighting, killing each other. And in the distance is the Aurora Borealis, which is sort of uh, eternal. And these battles are just sort of ultimately totally insignificant in terms of humanity. 
that's sort of my understanding. I don't know whether anyone else wants to, you know, give their explanation of it. Uh, I just thought it was a sort of a beautiful moment that kind of takes you out of the heat of the battle and gives you perspective on what war is in terms of, um, in terms of the, I don't know, the, the uh, time frame of all mankind and, you know, and more. Thank you. And my second question is for everyone. Is there any particular scene that hounds you to this very moment because of its utter power and magnificence? Well, I'll say um, that one in particular that you mentioned, Marvin, um, but the ending still gets me, moves me to tears. I see it as bittersweet. I don't see... Uh, I mean, it's heroic and it's a job well done, but it's it's very bittersweet. I mean, it's only the beginning of the battle and uh, what is about to transpire uh, changed the world and many lives were lost. So that one still gets me. Yeah, for me, it's kind of the same thing. It's at that moment where he receives the call from from the help and he gets his orders to kind of stand down and and he takes his orders quietly and he, he's done his job and uh, um, you know, he goes to finally can get some rest and he just very, you know, quietly goes and, you know, gets his rest and will wait for, he'll probably end up going back the other way um, across the ocean again. So um, yeah, that was for me, that's the strongest moment. Yeah, for, for me, it's, uh, it's the, when he gets his first kill, you know, the long kind of, uh, search for the submarine early in the show. And then the crew is, is, uh, is cheering and we realize that Tom Hanks realizes the weight of what he's done and the horror of it and how he and probably alone there realizes the, you know, the awful meaning of what, you know, what this accomplishment was and that it can't be a, uh, an unmitigated, you know, you can't really cheer the death of 50 men who, regardless of who they are. That, that's a powerful moment. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you. Question comes from Garrett von Kallenbach. Garrett, you're on mute. I am sorry. Uh, Two-part question. I wanted to uh, apologize if it's been asked already. I came in a bit late, but the first one's for Michael. And I was just uh, curious about how you went about uh, determining the sound of the boats and the weaponry in terms of making it authentic to the era, but also unique. So it had the, allowed the film to separate itself from a lot of other World War II era films. And the second half is for Blake. Uh, basically, how did you go about deciding to mix, say, military themes and military style music with the music of the era to, you know, give it full immersion? Thank you. Well, when it comes to, to the, uh, uh, the gunfire and uh, the ordinance that's used in the film, obviously, uh, authenticity was something that everybody wanted, and that was our starting point. So all of these guns, you can find uh, the original material in libraries. 
Now, what makes it different, and it makes it different on any movie with any sound designer, is what do you do? How far do you take it from there, from the, from its original source? You obviously we're making a movie. We don't want it to be strictly authentic, so uh, you want it to be dramatic. You want it to be exciting. You want people to like give you know knock them off their seat if you can. Uh, you know when the big guns go off. So you just sweeten them. You can sweeten them with five different new elements or ten or twenty new elements. But it's there. Um, so that's just to taste. And uh, we experiment with different uh, different sizes and uh, shapes of all the guns. They all want to sound unique. They all want to sound powerful and beautiful and scary. Um, so it's it's an emotional thing. The guns have to be emotional. They did. They're not there to just go bang. They are there to excite and amaze you, because if you can imagine a, a real destroyer that has so much weaponry on board that's going off at the same time, plus they're being shot at, uh, it's got to be pretty horrifying. And these are not just rifles that are going off. This is you know high caliber, big time guns and there's, with big time explosions. So. Uh, you want it to be amazing. Um, and for the music's question, uh, I, I decided early on to, to use anachronistic sounds. Um, you know, synthesizers weren't available during the war, but I felt like just to put a period spin on it like we did with, with the Pacific was, this was more of a modern modern film set in older times. Um, and it also allowed for this uh, back and forth between the reverent hymnal qualities of the score being the tried and true orchestra in a very set setting, while the uh, action could be angular and big right turns and weird sounds that you're not accustomed to. And that that was the approach there. Great, our next question comes from Ricardo Gallegos. So, hello. Um, the film has these uh, creepy scenes where the German enemies proclaim the imminent death of the crew over the, the loudspeakers. Uh, I wanted to know how did you approach uh, these scenes? How did you all approach them from capturing the face of terror of everyone to designing the, the sound atmosphere to, to having the, the perfect music to accompany everything? Well, I yes, think so much of it was in the in the. I'm sorry, Mike. So much of it was was in the script, and and I think again, um, um, as we started to get more and more of the pieces together, it kind of uh, you know there was just a natural kind of evolution. You know, the music and the sounds, and when we had all the toolbox and the VFX, it uh, you know we just kind of all um, it just kind of came together that way. It evolved. Michael? Yeah, well, um, just having all of the different tools that you can at your disposal uh, and making those choices and it's a frame by frame. Uh, what, what can be heard here, what should be heard here? Uh, do you want to hand it over in favor of music? You want to hand it over in favor of sound effects? Of course, dialogue always needs to be a concern. It must be heard at all times. So. It's literally a, a frame by frame kind of decision-making process.
process. There's a lot of music in this movie. There's probably 85 minutes of music in a 92 minute movie. And as well as a lot of warfare and dialogue. So it, the, the trick is to how to hear that music without hearing the music. Use the music, use the sound effects, use the dialogue the best way you can on a frame by frame basis. Yeah, and also uh, it's the magic of going to a mix. I mean, Mark, when he was cutting this, the the voice of the German, of the of the the head of the wolf pack, was a completely different voice in in his cut, in my cut, uh, the yeah. first time we mixed it, um, and then uh, you know they changed the voice a couple of times. It got scarier. Everything got scarier. It was cut tighter. Mike mixed it scarier. Um, but to that to that point, there's there's so much like Mike was saying. There's so much going on, but there's also in the first uh, two reels of the film, there's so much uh, lingo that you don't understand. This military, mm. only people on ships understand, sure. and so you're having to stay out of the way of that and make sure that uh, the right words are understood. Thank you. Great. Our next question comes from Rick Ellis. Hi, guys. Um, this question, I think, is for Mark or Sydney. Um, for everyone we've spoken with has said that, that uh, Tom came into this. He had very specific ideas about what uh, every aspect of the movie. And I'm wondering, what's that like from the editing standpoint to work with someone who has a very specific idea of things as opposed to working on a project where it's a little more up in the air? Yeah, uh, with Tom, it was always just, you know, uh, uh, he has a great deal of respect for the audience and, you know, uh, gives always gives them credit. Um, uh, you know, they'll get it. And, um, you know, and it's just, he's always just focused on, uh, you know, the meat of the story. So, uh, again, uh, this is all told from Krauss's perspective, more or less, and he was always there uh, to remind us of that. And always, you know, as you would imagine, keeps the room light and, you uh, you know, it's a good creative environment. Yeah. Sydney, you have any thoughts about that or? Well, as I, uh, Tom's, uh, as I, his intention was that it, the whole show would be from Tom's point, from the Krauss point of view. And I think that was stuck to pretty closely. So I think that was one of his major concerns. That it be, uh, and I know the novel also was a very interior novel, so he wanted uh, probably to honor that. Okay, all right, thank you. Thank and you. our next question comes from Bernard Ozowski. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. My question is for Mark and for Sydney. Uh, so in, in watching the movie, I was struck by the amount of specific detail that the audience is able to internalize about warfare. I, I, I wrote actually that it was sort of how trigonometry won the war. And I was curious to hear your thoughts on the challenge of conveying that much technical information alongside the sort of visual representations of the warfare that, that, that all that material denoted. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Well, I could say one of the challenges for me was to figure out what was going on. And uh, luckily our director 
who used to be a VP, um, is very smart and understood all the, the minutiae of everything in terms of, uh, in terms of, he could tell me how many shells would needed to be shot for, to, to, in reality, to, to kill a sub, or um, there's like different sonar, there's like a slow sonar and a fast sonar. And I, you know, one is for, you know, the closer the submarine gets to you, you switch to the fast sonar because it's coming so quickly, you want the pings to happen faster. Uh, there's just, and all of that was really, I mean, that's sort of what the story is about, about, you know, about the very specific challenges of uh, a destroyer finding a submarine and successfully destroying it. And uh, um, for me, the challenge was understanding it and then trying to realize that with the images that we had. I don't know, Mark might want to speak to this more. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the focus on this movie is the details. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say much more than that. I, I absolutely agree. Thank you. Well, the, the other thing I would say is that, you know, when we were cutting there, you know, everything looking out was all green screen. And, you know, there was, there were, there were no submarines, there were no ships, there was some previous stuff. And you just have to figure it out and, you know, be guided from, you know, uh, certainly for, by Aaron, who knew exactly what he was cutting, or what he was shooting and why, and to make that intelligible to the audience. Thank you. I have one more question from um, Ricardo Gallegos. Oh, there's this. Uh, this is a question for Blake Neely. There's been lots of, and lots and lots of war films. How do you approach the creation of on an original score with the pressure of trying to bring something fresh to the to the table? Well, that's the pressure is to try to do something fresh and. And there have been so many <clears throat> war movies and there have been so many fantastic scores. And I think that uh, my approach is just to try to forget all of that and honor, honor what's come before you, but uh, try to do your own thing. And I can only really write me. Um, but uh, yeah, that was definitely, you know, when, when Gary and Tom called, there was a, hey, we want a theme like, from the Pacific or like, and that was actually the, the most terrifying part is can I, can I do that again? Um, so it's, uh, I don't think it's any different than asking Mark or Mike what it's like to try to better your, or, or Sydney to do, uh, you know, one more war movie that's, that's as good or better than some that came before. But thankfully mm -hmm. I was able to find that sweet spot. Thank you. All right, thank you everybody. And right now we're gonna play a quick 30 second clip of the score.
Great. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that a quick second, quick 30 second clip. It didn't come through very well, but it was, that's actually the beginning of that, uh, uh, it's called Nightfalls from the beginning of that scene that does pan up to the heavens and the aurora borealis. All right, great. Thank you guys so much for your time. Sydney, Michael, Blake, Mark. Um, you guys have done really great. Everybody had great, great questions. Thank you so much for everybody taking the time today. We really, really do appreciate it.